Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Deftari. For so many weeks now, we have talked about the impending deal with the Iranian regime, what it would look like, how fast are we going to get there. But this week, we will spend some time looking at the other countries in the region and how it will affect them. What will their reaction be to an Iran deal? Namely, we want to talk about the Abraham Accords. How is that going to continue? How will it affect the countries who are already part of the accords? And will we be able to continue signing more Arab countries onto the accords? I'd like to call upon someone who was actually at the negotiating table when they were writing up the Abraham Accords, my good friend Robert Greenway, who is an adjunct fellow right now at the Hudson Institute. He also served as National Security Council from 2017 to 2021, uh, which culminated in him being Deputy Assistant to the President, Senior Director for Middle East and North African affairs. And that is where he was part of the team that actually negotiated the Abraham Accords. Welcome, Robert. Thanks for having me today, Lisa. Look forward to the conversation and the opportunity to talk about a very important subject. Robert, I want to start talking about, first of all, congratulations on this achievement. Regardless of how much it was downplayed by the mainstream media, uh, I think it was if not the most important, one of the most important foreign policy achievements ever, uh, particularly in the, the area of the Middle East, uh, which was definitely outside the box and um, meaningful, meaningful in many ways. Just this morning, uh, Israel and the UAE signed a healthcare deal. I mean, they are collaborating on so many different, uh, in so many different sectors, meaningful, meaningful um, relationship. Um, it's showing how it's utilitarian. It's a real relationship. Uh, what are the chances um, that this will continue in the current administration? Right. So um, it's a great question. And ultimately, uh, I would argue, and I think others uh, that participate in this, that U.S. leadership was essential. Uh, this had, uh, would not have, I think, been accomplished had not uh, the president and uh, a number of his staff, myself, fortunate enough to be included among them, to be able to, to generate the necessary momentum to get this uh, across the goal line. There are a number of factors. Security considerations are the most frequently cited. Many of the countries were considering uh, the trajectory of the region, the potential for a change in administrations and long term looking at their interests and seeing uh, Israel as a partner as being uh, fundamental to their security. And I think that's correct. But also, I think important to recognize is that countries, as they're recovering from the global pandemic, we're also looking at their economic prospects in the future and a partnership with Israel look equally attractive. Uh, it's something I think we, we, we don't often take into account is that the, the degree of economic cooperation between countries in the Middle East is among the lowest of any other region in the, in the, uh, in the world. And so when you're less than 15 percent uh, intra-GCC trade, there's obviously deficiencies. And so I think increasing trade among countries was a priority. And I think that'll drive the, the accords as they evolve into the future. And those two concerns, the economic and the security, I think will guide trajectory. But to your question, absent U.S. involvement, I think it's going to be very difficult for the countries to make the necessary next, step, next steps. Uh, among those next steps we envisioned originally was multilateral cooperation. So instead of the tremendous cooperation, which is fantastic, between UAE and Israel and Bahrain and Israel and Morocco and Israel and Sudan and Israel, you'd see uh, all the nations coming together in a collaborative fashion in a cooperative agreement together uh, and then have a multilateral forum to discuss these issues. We'd like to see it, but again, without the United States participation and encouragement, it's hard to say how that's going to shape up. There are also, of course, a number of factors which you're well aware, and that's the United States uh, trajectory in the negotiations with Iran. And that bears directly upon 
uh, a lot of strategic calculations of countries in the region and whether or not they're going to pursue a closer relationship with the United States or they're going to approach uh, the, the current situation with trepidation and look for alternatives. Um, speaking of participation from the United States, a bipartisan bill came out of the uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee this week that actually called upon um, the, the United States to carry this forward. Let's continue. Let's find new partners in the Arab world uh, to normalize relations with Israel. But, I mean, we have to look at you know, the realities here, right? So uh, Biden administration within the first, I don't know, week of, of coming into office reinstated or said that they would reinstate aid back to the Palestinians. Um, they are, you know, burning the midnight, midnight oil to get back into an Iran nuclear deal, you know, yesterday. Uh, and, you know, they've been somewhat cold to their to Israel, even though, you know, we had Lloyd Austin say, and we had Jake Sullivan say that we are loyal to Israel. I mean, the three weeks were very, very pronounced in uh, Biden waiting to call Bibi Netanyahu uh, when he first came into power. Um, the, the arms deal with Saudi Arabia was announced that it's being canceled because of human rights, because of the Khashoggi murder. I mean, we are we're almost pivoting back to um, the Obama era foreign policy. But meanwhile, the reality in the Middle East goes on with the Trump uh, administration's policies. How is this going to balance out? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I don't know that it will, uh, at least initially until until things settle. So I think you're seeing now naturally a lot of uh, of our partners and allies in the Middle East waiting to see exactly how events are going to transpire in Vienna and back in Washington. Uh, and in their own capitals. There's also a number of independent political decisions happening in each of the countries, certainly within Israel. But fundamentally, you're exactly right in that we're looking at a lot of the same individuals that charted and crafted the policy of the Obama administration are present now in the Biden administration. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see in exactly the same series of events because the region has moved on. And obviously, we're talking about exactly one of the most fundamental changes in the region to happen since at least 1994. And, and that's certainly going to shape the trajectory. I think the concern ought to be how the countries in the region are going to react if, in fact, we do uh, appear, as it appears we're going to do, a re-enter into the JCPOA and surrender the sanctions leverage that was necessary to, to bring about negotiations. And look, at the end of the day, uh, the regions, of course, have to look after their own security interests, and they will. Whether or not they do that in close collaboration with the United States, as I and many others would argue is essential, remains to be seen. What, what is missing from all of this, of course, is, is how, the, as the administration, many of their senior officials in testimony stated publicly, look, the, the JCPOA was insufficient uh, and a longer and stronger deal is required. And yet uh, a path to a longer and stronger deal seems to have left the conversation. Mm -hmm. And if, in fact, all of the sanctions leverage that we have labored to maintain and establish is surrendered to get compliance with the previous deal, it's unclear to anyone right now how we're going to obtain additional concessions from Iran. And frankly, I don't think that we will. Yeah, I want to unpack so many of the, the things you, you stated. First is the reaction from the uh, from the Arab nations. Um, I mean, one of the unstated uh, goals of the Abraham Accords was to unite those in the region that are against Iran marching forward, right? So um, now, all of a sudden, wouldn't these actors all of a sudden say, "Wait, wait a minute"? You know, we we had a you know a deal here, so to speak, and and we wanted to stop the Iranian regime from marching forward. And you're basically the accomplice here. He can say to the Biden administration, "Why would we play along? You're not going to sell us arms." What 
do you imagine will be the reaction of states like Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain? Um, obviously, Israel has been more vocal than ever. I mean, uh, we usually used to have uh, these diplomatic conversations with Israel on the sidelines. You know, a call from Bibi to the White House was normal. I mean, now they're going to the press. They're going and saying, listen, we will do whatever it takes to stop them. And as you said, that is their right to their security and to protect themselves. But um, to what you mentioned, the Arab states and their reaction, what will be the reaction and how much will it matter to the Biden administration? Yeah, so, I mean, we've had a lot of conversations over the years about this, uh, even when we first came in. And, and the key principle we've heard all along is consultation. Everyone wants to be included in this. Uh, and I think that's the first step. Now, the many officials in the new administration stated that their intent was to keep uh, everyone uh, consulted and to have a dialogue, a discussion. Um, I think we can all judge from the outside looking in how well that may or may not be going. Certainly, there's grave concern. All of the uh, of the countries in this question have seen this this unfold before, and that doesn't necessarily give them a great deal of security. I know, as uh, you probably do, I've had a number of conversations over the years about the real burn that it left uh, among other countries in the region, uh, all of our partners and allies, what happened leading up to 2015. Mm -hmm. It was extremely uh, unpleasant memory for them. And I think that that certainly is in the forefront of their minds. So number one principle is consultation. And the second is choice. Uh, the countries in the region have a choice. Uh, now for us strategically, that means are they going to align themselves regardless with the United States and the security provisions that we would provide in the event that Iran now fueled with billions of dollars again, can, can threaten the region uh, without constraint? Or are they going to make a different decision? And that's at the heart of it now, because that decision then can go one of two ways. The first is they could seek strategic alignment with China or Russia, which neither of, I think, would, would, would in any way succeed and would be incredibly detrimental to the individual countries and to the United States. The second choice is they could collaborate amongst themselves. They could take the Abraham Accords to the next level, evolve it to the point where it becomes not just economic and diplomatic coordination, but it becomes security cooperation. As you know, uh, we labored uh, on a number of things in the past administration, one of which was to establish an enduring regional security architecture. The ultimate goal was to get normalization with Israel and the Middle East Strategic Alliance, which is what we called it, to align and to meet at some point in the future. That was the goal. We made progress on normalization with Israel, obviously, mm -hmm. in the form of the Abraham Accords. Mesa was close, but we didn't get all the way there. It is possible that the countries in the region would do this independently uh, without the United States leadership, but I think it's unlikely. Uh, I think if the United States led, on the other hand, I think absolutely uh, a new regional security architecture with Saudi Arabia included it is absolutely possible and would be beneficial for the region and for the United States. Well, it seems like the United States is leading elsewhere, and that's in Vienna to push forward on an Iran nuclear deal. Um, you you mentioned a lot of important points about how we are in such a different landscape than we were in 2015. Yet, it's the, the talking points coming out of Vienna are going back to 2015, going back to 2015. Uh, you wrote an important piece um, that came out actually yesterday um, on... Uh, holding Iran accountable, the importance of maintaining sanctions leverage. Um, obviously, you make such important points about how sanctions have worked. And if they hadn't worked, we wouldn't see Iran coming back to the, uh, the negotiating table. Uh, and we have seen as much as um, they're playing this game of chicken, the United States hasn't blinked yet to actually remove uh, those sanctions. But you speak of, of leverage. And I thought that was so important to 
stop for a moment and say, well, they've already taken the Houthis off the terror list. They have already stated both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden before, I mean, while they were running, while they were campaigning, they stated out loud that we will go back into an Iran nuclear deal. I mean, how much leverage is, you know, are you are you really using when you're telling your opponents that you win? The, the bottom line is you will win. Now, how we get there, um, you know, how how is leverage even part of the, the goal or the game for the Biden administration? Well, so ultimately, look, the question of leverage is uh, is present. So the, 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 the real issue, I think, is how they use the leverage that we provided them. So you look over the course of the two Obama administrations and the previous uh, Bush administration, in those three presidential terms, uh, a little less than 750 individual designations against Iranian-affiliated entities over the course of that those uh, those 12 years. Uh, and what, what we managed to accomplish in four was uh, was nearly 1,500. And the economic pressure bears that in mind. While they were, uh, Iran at peak was exporting a little over 2.1 million barrels per day, the Obama administration sort of drew the line at a million barrels per day. We obviously stated our goal from April 19 was to go to zero and manage it. Uh, and, and practically speaking, we got them somewhere between 300 and 500,000 barrels per day. The economic impact that I describe in there, I think, has been independently um, you know, portrayed a number of different ways. But the, the fundamental point is the unprecedented economic situation that the maximum economic pressure campaign put on Iran, historic lows in every major macroeconomic indicator. Uh, again, with the, with the data that Iran itself displays, it's actually much worse than that has given the Biden administration unprecedented leverage. What they have decided to do with that leverage, of course, very much looks as though it is simply to return to the status quo of 2015. And, and it's a shame that historic and unprecedented leverage, twice what was required to get them to the table in 2015, would be used to go to a, basically a temporary agreement with significant flaws that we now know Iran has been violating since before it signed the original agreement. The deficiencies are altogether on display because uh, obviously the, 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 the material, particularly the centrifuges that Iran was allowed to maintain, are all now being employed to rush towards greater enrichment. And our response to this, which is difficult to understand, is to return to compliance with a deal that didn't work. It's hard to understand how, one, we would take historic leverage and not make the most of it. And, and, and the, other, the other point I, I attempt to make in that article, others have made as well, is look, our, our interests exceed the scope of the nuclear deal. Whether or not you think it was good or bad, obviously I think it was deeply flawed and many others do. Certainly the Republicans uh, took steps yesterday to, to make that abundantly clear to uh, the Iranians and to the international business community, which is right. But fundamentally speaking, our interests exceed the scope of the nuclear uh, program. And so if we don't account for terrorism, for proliferation, for gross human rights violation, for the unjustly detained, uh, that that Jiwe and others uh, have been incredibly, uh, Melissa Gilbert, have been incredibly vocal about, and rightly so, then I think we're surrendering enormous amount of leverage for very little gain. And, uh, and again, I think it's a shame, and I think ultimately it'll be a mistake if that's in fact what transpires. Now, I ask all my guests who speak on this topic um, to um, really you know, deep, dig a little deeper. And, you know, to what you're saying, I mean, it can't be explained through diplomacy or through uh, any sort of, of political play that they would uh, really lose this opportunity to use leverage, that they would 
um, you know, surrender to an enemy state that calls for death to the United States, death to Israel, uh, like, you know, human rights violations. They're not shy about telling us about, you know, increased uranium enrichment. Uh, you know, the, the people of Iran tell us this, they're, they're the crimes daily. And here we are trying to whitewash all of that. How can this be explained? <laughs> well, not easily is the short answer. Uh, among the reasons, you know, I was brought uh, to the NSC in the first place to, to start working on Iran under the previous administration is because my background is practical uh, and has been, you know, working uh, in, in the countries uh, in the region for some 30 years and dealing with Iran for many decades. And that's sort of my education uh, it, with Iran is certainly eminently practical. And so, as we know, the, the Quds Force in particular is responsible for the execution of Iran's foreign policy. It's not the diplomats in Vienna. I mean, Zarif, I think, was, uh, was uniquely frank some weeks ago and was asked point blank on Iranian television whether or not he had control over Iran's foreign policy. And he said, no, he doesn't. That's one of the few times I think he's, he's uttered something that was accurate. Uh, it's also why, if you recall, when uh, Bashar al-Assad visited Tehran, now, some two years ago, and, and Zarif wasn't even invited to the meeting, and he threatened to resign, which he's done before. Uh, ultimately, uh, my education with the Quds Force, like many others in the region, leads me to conclude that you're not, you're not supposed to give Iran the benefit of the doubt or the trust that you would give another country. They don't warrant it. And second, you have to be extremely cautious, and so that you should maintain as much leverage as possible and, uh, and not concede it, because ultimately, uh, they will take whatever they're given. And the, the unfortunate reality is relief from sanctions, which brought them to the negotiating table, which is their principal goal, starves them of the resources to threaten their neighbors. And what everyone in the region is paying close attention to is if the spigots are opened back up and resources flow back into Tehran and the, the regime is given an additional lifeline, those resources will not go to the benefit of the Iranian people. They will mm -hmm. not go to food, medicine, water, irrigation projects. Uh, or communications technology, nothing that the Iranian people need or want or deserve. They will instead go to oppression and regional terrorism. And its missile program obviously is a, is a witness of this. And the drones that are provided in enormous quantities to the Houthi and Yemen, et cetera, are, are all manifest to this reality. The Iranian people know it. Uh, the people in the region know it. Uh, the difficulty, I think, is making those in Vienna and those in the current administration really understand that truth. Uh, before we're able, I think, to make real progress. Yeah, it's the, the irony of the people who are standing behind the people in Iran, the people who are saying that this money will go into terrorism are on the right. Whereas, you know, you have all these, where, where are the human rights advocates on women's rights, on the journalists being thrown into prison for a mere Facebook post, uh, the gays being hanged? I mean, where are all these interest groups that, you know, would, would speak about this, you know, if it were in the United States or anywhere else? But when it comes to Iran, they'd rather have a, you know, policy of appeasement, kumbaya, you know, they're great. I mean, how did this happen? Yeah, it, it is, uh, I think, a great mystery to, to many of us. I had a number of conversations, as you have, with, uh, with well-intentioned individuals that were upset about a human rights violation somewhere in the Middle East, and rightly so, because we all know that it occurs. Um, I think, it, you know, we, we often forget what ISIS did in the region uh, before they were completely eradicated and the caliphate was mm -hmm. destroyed. Um, but I think there are plenty of instances where you see outrage, uh, and at the same time, it's not commensurate when it comes to Iran. And somehow we suspend not just disbelief with Iran, uh, we also suspend the, rea our, you know, the, the truth and the reality of what's going on 
and what's happening to individual citizens inside of Iran. And they give us plenty of evidence to do so. And so what happened in, uh, in, in relieving the sanctions on Ansar Allah and the Houthis in Yemen, ostensibly to enable negotiations, which have not happened, uh, and, it, and to relieve the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, it has not happened uh, for this very reason. So people should be upset about human rights uh, in the region and in places like Yemen and in Syria, but people should hold Iran accountable for their role in it. Iran doesn't ship food and wheat uh, to, to Yemen any more than it really does in Syria. Uh, it, it ships women, it, it weapons, uh, missiles, uh, drones, right. uh, technology and advisors. That's what Iran exports to these countries where human rights abuses are egregious. And in my mind, we ought to be consistent about it if we're going to have any credibility. And if I'm not mistaken, just this past week, Iran was given a prominent role uh, in women's rights at the United Nations. Mm -hmm. It's right. theater of the absurd, uh, especially when you look at what, uh, what women undergo inside of Iran as a matter of not just of practice, but of law. Uh, it is strange to understand, and frankly, I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't claim to understand it, but I do think that we ought to be consistent in holding the regime to the same standard that we attempt to hold others to. And last time I checked, uh, the, rec the record for Tehran is the worst for human rights in the Middle East. You know, is it because, I just want to, you know, go a little further with this same topic, but is it because of lack of knowledge? Is it because they don't associate the word Houthi with the Iranian regime or in Syria, they're the besiege or in Lebanon, they are supporting Hezbollah and in Gaza, they're supporting Hamas. And, you know, is it because they are, you know, um, operating under different, you know, names or is there a a, a bigger uh, PR collaboration here? In the, I mean, how is it that are lawmakers seeing this? I mean, how how would you, we, are, are we educated in this or is there more ignorance on this? Well, look, I always think there's more to learn on any subject, this included. Uh, but I don't know that it's ignorance. I think that the principal problem uh, is, one, you rightly point out, connecting the activity of the Houthis in Yemen with Iran. People sort of understand it, but I don't know that that's well understood. And some, frankly, you know, don't see it at all. But I think there are also other agendas at work. And I, so I think that those that are keen uh, to hold the Saudis accountable, uh, tend to blame the Saudis for everything bad that happens in Yemen. I think the same is true uh, you know, inside Syria and inside Gaza and the West Bank. And look, there's plenty of blame to go around, but I think we ought to be consistent in how we do it. Unfortunately, the facts would tend to support the conclusion that Iran and its surrogates and proxies are more responsible for humanitarian suffering than almost anyone else inside the region, ex including you know, uh, places outside of Iran itself. I would argue certainly that the principal uh, obstacle between our ability to provide humanitarian assistance to the people in Yemen is, is Iran and the Houthis, uh, without question. And I think right. the facts support that conclusion. And I would say the same is true in, in, uh, in Lebanon, without question. And I feel incredibly, uh, uh, I, I really empathize with the people in, in Lebanon for the suffering that's, that's now on full display, and they almost have no hope in the future largely because Iranian-sponsored Hezbollah has taken over the government uh, since the Doha agreement uh, in 2004. And unless that changes, uh, I see little prospects for a brighter future in Lebanon, at least in the near term. Right. Absolutely. I think um, this brings us to a, a, an important discussion about the role of the media in all of this. 
Um, obviously, you know, I even started out telling, uh, talking about how the, in the Abraham Accords, they, they decided to kind of dumb that down and talk about it. I think Nancy Pelosi called it a uh, non, non-socially distant event on the White House lawn, um, you know, just to, just to put it down and, and, and belittle its, its real significance in, in foreign policy. Um, now we see the media is driving the Iran nuclear deal. We see them really um, whitewashing so much of what's going on and promoting the removal of sanctions, promoting going to Vienna and getting a deal and, and calling that really an achievement. Um, the, the Washington Post did a piece um, this week, U.S. provides Iran with a list of sanctions it will and will not lift. Um, already pushing, again, this, this, creating the momentum that the, the sanctions will be lifted, therefore we will get into a deal, right? Um, and in the piece, it cites an unnamed State Department official, wonderful journalism, right? Um, and it, it says, the Trump administration deliberately and avowedly imposed sanctions involving the terrorist label, even though they were done purely for the purpose of preventing or hindering the U.S. return to compliance with the nuclear deal. We are basically, in this piece, trampling a US president for the the for the only you know outcome being to vindicate a bunch of terrorist mullahs and go forward with a deal. Yeah, it's uh it, it's the Washington Post. This is the I mean and it happens and I'm sorry to cut you off. The New York Times does it, the Washington Post does it. They they all do it. And it it's it's just bad national security if not anything else. It is, on, it is, and it's unfortunate. Um, and, you know, I think uh, the longer and broader discussion of why um, many media outlets have tend to sort of uh, walk away from facts, uh, but this is certainly one of those instances. There's no question for those of us on the, non, on the non-socially distance event on the White House lawn in September of last year, that was uh, probably the last thought in my mind. And I think for everyone there. Um, and there was, by the way, I was there and it was an honor of a lifetime to be invited um, as I was uh, at the White House with Jared Kushner for many of the meetings. A handful of us journalists were, were invited um, as as guests and not, not covering the event. But I can tell you that we all wore masks. I mean, you were there, you know, everyone wore masks. It was socially distant. And um I think you know when when I even posted pictures of the event, um, the detractors. That's the first thing they say. I see you're not wearing a mask, and you know my response was for the picture. I took off my mask. You can see it. My hand was behind me. You could see the mask in my hand. But um, you know, th- it's just it's just to minimize. Yeah, yeah there's no question about it. And and look, um, yeah, I don't I don't think there's much justification for inaccurate coverage of what is an unprecedented historic event. Uh, 79 was unique, was the first. Uh, 94 with Jordan, certainly equally historic, uh, but achieving five agreements in the span of, of less than five months uh, in you know, the first time in 25 years is, uh, is unprecedented. And I think you know, most, uh, most uh, common sense applying individuals would see it exactly that way. Uh, in terms of how the you know the current negotiations with Iran and, and our approach to the region is concerned and how it's covered, I also think we're not doing uh, um, uh, the public a great deal of service, and I don't think we're giving them a great deal uh, of respect either, and allowing them to make and draw conclusions on their own. I think ultimately the question comes down to uh, whether or not and how the United States needs to be involved productively in the Middle East, and that's the broader question. There's a lot of fatigue, I think, in the American public and elsewhere. 
with the question, but I don't think that we can walk away from it entirely. And I don't think anyone supports an idea that the United States could align itself with Iran in any way, shape or form to secure the region's uh, peace and stability. And obviously, uh, it, uh, uh, many folks, including myself, would disagree with that, uh, that judgment. And yet it appears uh, in many respects that uh, that is uh, at least part of the intent. And if we do turn from our partners and allies in the region towards Iran, I think we can expect a great deal uh, of escalation. Uh, and I think that uh, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not good for the region. It's not good for our partners and allies. And it's not good for the United States. And as we're coming out of and recovering from a global pandemic, the last thing we can afford is a disruption to peace and stability in the Middle East, but also uh, to global energy markets, because now, of course, is when our economies are coming back to life. And one of the things they desperately need, not just in the United States as an exporter, but other countries, uh, is energy so that we can resume our normal lives. Uh, and it's also, I think, doubly a shame because, as you mentioned, you know, we handed uh, a historic opportunity uh, to really align our partners and allies in the region together in a way that hadn't been done before to stand up against terrorism in all of its forms, including those that are sponsored by Iran. And I think it's unfortunate uh, if we get to the point where that is surrendered in order to turn to compliance with a deal that is already expiring and is already being violated. Uh, I hope uh, that's not where we end up, but it does appear as though we're, we're on track for it. And I hope those in the media uh, you know, uh, remember what their, their responsibilities are and objectively call the facts uh, as applicable. Um, there's there's going to be a great deal, I think, uh, of risk associated with the next couple of months. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, wanted, I want you to walk people through, because I don't think this is talked about enough. Um, we had Ari Berkowitz on the show uh, the day after um, the, the signing of the Abraham Accords in September. We had him kind of talk about a little of the process, but he was still in, in, in his post, so he wasn't able to speak as openly about the negotiation. Um, walk us through from initiation of, of even the, the idea uh, to signing on September 15th. What was the process like? Um, I'm going to ask you more specific things about the actual negotiations, but can you just walk us through a quick timeline of how it just came about? Sure, and, and happy to. And I, I, I'm sure I can improve on what, what you've already heard from Avi, but I'll, I'll, I'll try. Um, the first thing to remember in this, uh, in the origins of the Accords, again, uh, as I mentioned before, there were two sort of fundamental uh, approaches that the Trump administration was applying uh, toward the Middle East. Uh, if you had to boil it down to its essential components. The first was sort of uh, uh, dealing with certainly the destruction uh, and the defeat of ISIS, uh, which, uh, which we accomplished. And the second was to, to contain uh, Iran and to ensure that it was, uh, it was not destabilizing the region any further and creating conditions to return to negotiations. So those two things were the actions we were taking against our, our adversaries. The other uh, equally important part of this, all set forth in the president's comments from his uh, historic trip to Riyadh in May of 2017, was to establish a regional and enduring security architecture. Uh, and that encompassed two parts. First was Mesa, which we discussed, uh, I mentioned earlier. And then the second is the normalization with Israel, which are, uh, manifests itself in the Abraham Accords. So from the beginning, uh, we focused on those priorities and put those in motion. From the beginning, defeating ISIS was the immediate priority. Addressing the threat from Iran was certainly the second uh, and took up a, a great deal of our time and attention, and rightly so. 
the discussions with Israel on normalization with its neighbors happened very quickly. We established early on a, a formal process for coordinating our strategy with Israel. Uh, that was uh, complete and documented and done uh, by December of 2017. Uh, if you recall, we had uh, concluded and completed the first uh, first ever in history strategy for dealing with Iran in September. The president announced it on 13 October. Uh, and, and we had, at that point again, established a process for coordinating with Israel. We talked about normalization, but the priority was first Iran. Uh, if you fast forward a little bit, uh, the, the next probably major milestone in, in, along the way was uh, Secretary Pompeo's hosting uh, in Warsaw of a regional security dialogue. And uh, that was the first time uh, we got the regional uh, foreign ministers, and in this case, uh, the Israeli head of state, who was also acting as uh, a number of ministers uh, by, uh, by happenstance. And they all appeared at the same time and came to the same public conclusion that the greatest threat to regional peace and security in the Middle East was Iran. And that fundamental agreement between the United States and Israel and its neighbors was the basis of all of this. And so while we were addressing Iran with the maximum economic pressure campaign, we established a formal dialogue and discussion with Israel and with the region. We were pursuing the Middle East Strategic Alliance, which traveled a bumpy road. All complicated things uh, can take time. Certainly this did. Uh, largely, uh, all uh, all states, uh, GCC plus two, so that's Jordan and Egypt, agreed minus Egypt. Uh, and to make the story a little bit shorter, we ultimately got to a fundamental understanding between all countries uh, on what a regional enduring security architecture would look like. Um, at the same time, by the summer of 2018, we really knew largely what uh, the Emirates, uh, what the Emirates were, were looking for in terms of normalization, what it would take for normalization between the UAE and Israel. Uh, we weren't able to to get to, to the finer points of it until probably December of 2019. Um, and in the summer of 2018 also, we had known enough about our discussions uh, with Morocco to know what it would take for Morocco to get to uh, normalization. In their case, the resumption of normalization. So they had one time had had, as you know. And so the deals were well established. The principles and the communication channels were there. That fundamental agreement on what the principal threat to the region's peace and stability was essential to it all. And our relationship, uh, the president's relationships, Jared's relationships, Secretary Pompeo, Secretary Mnuchin, uh, Avi, uh, and, and those of us working along with them in support uh, made this possible. Uh, but it wasn't until uh, COVID hit and delayed things uh, where we were able to formally resume conversation. And then UAE, uh, uh, we, we were able to renew conversations between both Israel and the UAE by late August uh, of 2020. Uh, 20. And by that time, uh, we, we rapidly came to a conclusion on what it would take to get the parties to agree. Once that had been accomplished, uh, Bahrain uh, was, was uh, the initial focus thereafter. And I, I have to give the UAE a great deal of credit, as I, I have to for Israel, uh, for being incredibly flexible and supportive. But both in UAE's case with Mohammed bin Zayed and, uh, and with uh, the leadership in Bahrain, uh, the king uh, was absolutely, and his staff, uh, the crown prince included, were incredibly uh, cooperative, forward-leaning, and have great strategic vision. And so the result was the, the call on the 13th of August. Uh, and then, obviously, we had the signing ceremony, and we're lucky enough to get all three uh, together at one time. Uh, the conversations then shifted to Morocco and Sudan. 
Uh, I spent uh, a good bit of that uh, time in November, December in Morocco working through the details. And frankly, uh, the chief obstacle in, in, uh, in, in coming to normalization with Morocco was on the U.S. side uh, more than anything else. Uh, I don't think it was complicated between Israel and Morocco. I think it was mostly in the United States. And that had to do with really the recognition of sovereignty, Morocco's sovereignty over the Western Sahara, now the mm. southern provinces. Uh, once we were able to conclude that, uh, uh, things fell into place. And as you know, Sudan, the chief obstacles were uh, removing them from the state-sponsored terrorism list, which was already in motion because they had met the criteria for removal, and then dealing with the economic concerns to maintain stability for both uh, Prime Minister Hamdok and General Burhan. I'll pause there because I think I covered a lot of ground. You did, but I noticed you didn't mention the Palestinians in, in your timeline. Um, and I know that they were obviously you'll weave that in for us. Um, what would you say to the the critics who say that by design, President Trump and his team uh, wanted to marginalize the Palestinians from the get-go? Well, I think that's a very easy answer, and thanks for bringing that up. Um, what I, I probably should have mentioned in that a very abbreviated timeline was uh, what I think everyone recalls is uh, the president and, and Jared and Avi uh, uh, releasing the, the vision, uh, the plan for peace and prosperity in the Middle East, which happened yeah. in January of last year. And obviously that took years and took an enormous amount of effort. There is, I think, no corollary to the detailed plan that was put forward uh, to propose the resolution of the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. A lot of credit goes to uh, Jared, Avi, Jason Greenblatt, and the team for putting that together and for putting the work into it and hosting a conference in Bahrain on the economic prosperity. So I don't right. think it's, I don't think anyone could really defend the fact that no time and effort was put into it or that it happened first before the normalization agreements with other Arab states were concluded. I think the real question uh, we all, I think, understand is that the Palestinians were not then, nor are they now in a position really uh, within themselves, I think, to begin the process of negotiation. But to be frank, the, the table is set and uh, the dialogue and discussion could happen at any time. And we've provided uh, a very, very detailed plan to form the basis of that conversation. Yes, I remember um, from, from a journalistic point of view, being invited to the White House to see the peace and prosperity plan before it was on embargo, before it was released. And it was that weekend, we got notification that it was basically dead on arrival, the Palestinians wouldn't even look at it. Um, and that's when they went to Bahrain, and, and your, your story continues. So um, that that is absolutely true. And we saw it from from this, this side as well. Um, you know, a lot of what you and there's so many so many questions I'm sure many of our viewers have about the intricacies of the deal and, um, you know, how long it took and what the conversations were like. But I want to go to something more macro. And that is the focus um, that you all very astutely had on the people of the region more so than anything else. And I think this the Abraham Accords represents that a future of prosperity between the peoples of the Middle East, which leaves out the Palestinians and now leaves out the Iranian people. 80 million people, a majority of that number being disenchanted with their government and saying, we want better, we want more. Uh, I call the Abraham Accords on this show. I've said it from the day we the, the uh, administration announced the Abraham Accords. I call it the real Arab Spring because that's when the Arab people came to life and said, we have a future outside of our, of our uh, 
um, borders. We have a future with technology, with apps, with tourism, uh, and the list goes on. And obviously, we're seeing that in in, in motion um, in the aftermath. Uh, we had Victoria Coates and uh, Len Khodorkovsky come on the show and announce their plan for the cyber accords, which would mimic the Abraham Accords, but would be between the people of Iran and the people of Israel, and therefore the, the rest of the region as well, to come to the other side. Uh, and obviously, this is something that we hear from the people of Iran every day. You know, this is this government doesn't represent us. We want we want peace. We want to connect. We're very they are very forward thinking, and they introduce themselves to us in 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 the Green Revolution of 2009. Um, how, I mean, from your negotiation standpoint, what are, and I know that with the Abraham Accords, there were some, you know, those chief assumptions, those underlining, those those pinnings that really um, make you or, or give you the ability to mend the rift. How, how would this look like? I mean, is there a possibility for something like the, the Cyrus Accords to come to life? And what would it look like from your perspective? So you're absolutely right. I think anyone that spent time in the region recognizes that everything is done based on personal relationships. And that takes time and it takes investment. It takes a number of factors, trust and credibility. And, uh, and certainly absent the relationships built by you know, all of us uh, that were responsible for bringing the Accords about, would not have happened. And again, that fundamental appreciation that we all agreed on what the principal threat to the region's peace and stability was, that, that, that's very difficult to replace. I would add to something that uh, I think many folks have identified before that most of the individuals responsible, including those in the region, uh, including many heads of state, are first and foremost, in a lot of ways, businessmen. Uh, they are used to concluding business deals, which is very different uh, than I think what we normally associate with the conduct of diplomacy very outcome focused. Uh, it is uh, it's very trust focused. And a lot of it is uh, relentless pursuit of the bottom line and a favorable outcome. And I think all those are true. And you know, this is one of the, the best deals, I think, where everyone walks away thinking that they got exactly you know, what they anticipated and more. And they're right. Uh, to your question about, uh, about the Cyrus Accords uh, and credit to Len and Victoria who are both your friends and, uh, and, and I greatly appreciate their vision in seeing uh, what essentially to me is a return to the past because we all can remember a time, well, maybe not all, but we can remember <laughs> a time uh, before 1979 where, where that was the case, where there was cooperation between Israel and Iran and a number of critical issues. Right. And in fact, uh, as you probably know, uh, a, a pretty historic economic project between Israel and the UAE is going to complete the pipeline connecting the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, which was started in the 70s under the Shah, but is going to be concluded uh, under the auspices of the Abraham Accords. And I think that that shows what the potential is. And you're right, the people in the region and the people in Iran see time passing them by. And I think that uh, that's a powerful motivator. No one wants to get left behind in the progress uh, that's being shown and is on full display uh, between uh, the UAE and Bahrain and Israel and Sudan and Morocco. Uh, and I think even Egypt and Jordan enjoying uh, normalized relations and peace with Israel for, for decades longer. I think they're also too looking rightly at how they can improve the relationship with Israel and take advantage of each other's strengths geographically and economically, mm -hmm. as well as from a security perspective. There's enormous potential in this. And I think you're right, the people in Iran absolutely see this. Uh, and I think many of them can recall uh, what cooperation looks like. And look, at the end of the day, selling 
perpetual conflict, war, terror, and death. Um, you know, eventually that's not, a, or if at all, that's not a terribly persuasive argument. It's not something that's very easy to sell. And I don't think people in Iran are buying it. And I don't think people in the region are buying it anymore. Right. Well, I hope if that day comes that you are at that negotiating table and that you can come back with a, a favorable outcome like you did with the Abraham Accords. And my last question, I think a lot of people were curious about this. Um, had there been a second Trump term, uh, what countries would have signed on and what uh, what countries were you in conversations with? Uh, I know both Jared and President Trump mentioned several times that there is a, a queue of uh, countries that would like to come on to the deal. Um, can you mention who those, uh, which nations are on that list and what the prospects of going forward with the uh, continued um, negotiations would look like now? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you you mentioned it. Not surprising you asked the question. And every time the president would say that um, in front of the cameras in the Oval Office, which he did, I think every time we we had one of the, uh, the signing agreements and press statements, we'd all look at each other wondering if we were all look, considering the same list at the same time that the president had in mind when he said it. And uh, perhaps we did, maybe maybe we didn't. Uh, I will say though that uh, as I think has been noted before, and I, I wrote in the paper that discussions with uh, with Mauritania. I think we're showing some signs of progress, and I think that could be revisited. I think the circumstances may be, uh, may be getting close to correct. Um, conversations with Indonesia, mostly about incremental progress, not necessarily full normalization, but the resumption of commercial relationships, establishing of direct flights, and those are vital. And those are important precursors and uh, incredibly important first steps with a very, very significant country uh, outside the region as well. And then I would add to it that I think that countries like Oman, uh, Qatar, uh, certainly Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, in due course, and and even sub-Saharan co countries like Chad and Niger, understanding the difficulty currently uh, in progress in Chad. But I also think that there is mm -hmm. potential there as well. But conversations were not nearly as advanced in those cases. But we had discussions with all of them, frankly. Uh, and we also shouldn't forget, even though not uh, expressly part of the Abraham Accords, we shouldn't forget the progress in Kosovo either. Wonderful. I mean, that's a, a it's a long list of, uh, you know, really changing and shaping the mood of the region. Um, I guess my only follow-up question to that would be, do you think now that Saudi Arabia is, uh, you know, these punitive measures against the um, Saudis have been announced by the White House, uh, again, in retaliation for the Khashoggi murder, uh, do you think that would push them sooner to go you know, cozy up with Israel in in maintaining that relationship? So it's a great question. Um, and I think, look, it is unfortunate that we're, um, we're rethinking our security cooperation with a country that's receiving almost daily barrages of missile and drone attacks that are provided by the Iranians. And look, we can't forget the fact that we have a lot of U.S. personnel, civilians and military personnel still inside the kingdom uh, by mutual agreement. And there's also a number of innocent civilians, uh, Saudis as well as other regional um, partners, exposed to these attacks on a regular basis, uh, all against the very definition of terrorism, uh, blatant attacks against civilian infrastructure uh, to shape opinions and views. Uh, it, it's a bad precedent. It's not efficient. It's not practical. It doesn't protect U.S. interests. And a lot of the things that we're pausing are exactly the types of equipment and, and munitions that Saudi Arabia needs in order to defend itself and, and everyone else in the region from these attacks. And it's not gonna be limited to Saudi Arabia. The Houthis have publicly stated they intend to be able to target Israel as well. Mm -hmm. And they've obviously targeted global maritime 
uh, trade in the Babel Mendeb uh, and in the Red Sea, as well as in the Gulf of Oman. So it, it, it is broader than that. And I don't think, I think it's incredibly short-sighted. And I, hopefully it'll get resolved. In terms of whether or not Saudi Arabia would uh, approach normalization with Israel, I think the question is, is not a matter of if, it's a question of when. Uh, everyone speculates uh, on time, not my place to do that. I would say is that uh, uh, the United States can and should do a great deal in order to encourage Saudi Arabia to make that decision. I think it'd be good for the kingdom. I think it'd be good for Israel. It'd be good for the United States and for the region, uh, certainly under the circumstances. But the reality is that Saudi Arabia has a choice. And if, in fact, the United States uh, gets closer to providing resources to its arch enemy in the region, attacking it on a near daily basis in Iran, then you have to wonder whether or not the Saudis will, will hesitate uh, in their relationship right. with the United States. Right. And that's something we should absolutely discourage, uh, not encourage. And look, uh, we have to be frank about this, too, that the Saudis and others have choices. And many look to China and Russia to provide what the United States may not. Now, I'd say I'd be the first to tell you, as, as Syria has shown us, Russian equipment doesn't work. It's a waste of money and you shouldn't buy right. it. It right. doesn't work in the United States. So. I'd say the same with the Chinese. But we have to give them that choice. And I think given that choice, they'll make the right one and they'll partner with the United States. And I hope that's what happens. Yeah, well, the, the Iranians have gone to the Chinese for 25 years. They have a deal. So uh, maybe others will join. And we know that uh, China is equal opportunity when it comes to drawing up these uh, meaningless deals. So maybe they'll they'll spread that around the Middle East as well. Thank you. I mean, I could speak to you for hours and I, I thank you for your expertise. I encourage everyone to follow Robert on social media. We've provided his handle on Twitter uh, underneath the uh, screen and you can see it there. But I encourage you to follow him, follow his wisdom, and you can understand everything about what's going on in the Middle East from someone who's seen it up close and understands it the best, really, in the business. Thank you so much, Robert, for your time. And we hope to have you back here very soon. Thank you very much. Uh, Great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. And to the rest of you who'd like to sign up for or subscribe to our podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. And to sign up for our daily email, go to foreigndesknews.com. Thank you all and see you next week.